The lavish palace of Versailles, just outside Paris, was designed to impress. And its landscaped acres provided a place to catch your breath. So many of these kings sought refuge at the back of Versailles, at the back of the gardens in the Trianon. Coming up, guides from France help us plan a day trip to Versailles. Among the stories Dionne Searcy covered as a reporter in West Africa, one of them earned her a Pulitzer. It was about the women and girls who escaped being used as suicide bombers by Boko Haram. These women weren't vicious fighters as the media, as the government had portrayed them. And friends from Greece and Bulgaria tell us about their special traditions for observing Orthodox Easter. The Saturday before Easter, we have a celebration of St. Lazarus Day. It's very important for all the girls. From the opulence of Versailles to the changing scene in West Africa, come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. We'll take a look at the countries of West Africa from a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist. And we'll dive into the big Orthodox Easter celebrations in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. It was designed to make a big impression on its visitors. More than 300 years later, the Palace of Versailles continues to amaze. It makes for a full day trip from Paris. And if you plan it right, it can be a piece of cake. Here to help are Parisian tour guides Arnaud Sauvignon and Véronique Savoy. It's a conversation we recorded before the pandemic shutdowns. They take us to the showplace of Louis XIV, the so-called Sun King, who claimed a divine right to rule over France. Well, the idea is that the, the royalty is getting his rights from divine rights. So, so God uh, says you get to be king. Yes, there you go. Through the blessing, through the coronation, you are blessed by God to become a king. That's all about what now, is if, royalty. Now, if God said, you're the king and I'm the peasant, then you need to convince me that this is the truth. If you have a fantastic palace, I'm more likely to believe that God's on your side. Well, the, the fact to have, you know, uh, a palace goes with the function of being a king. Yeah. Uh, if the king cannot show display and ostentation, uh, then it means power, absolutely. It means the country is weak. Okay. And so back then it was totally accepted and the king had to be, you know, So if I'm glorious. a citizen, I want my king to live of like course. a king because he's the guy. And Veronique, how would you impress people at Versailles? To me, if, if you're divine, you must be able to control nature. Well, yeah, so you would design a grandiose gardens with uh -huh. fountains, music, and a lot of festivities and events and all the etiquette and the pomp. And so you do this for the people, you do this for the court, but you also do this for the monarchs of other nations, the dignitaries you invite, so the other kings you're trying to make jealous. Your life is like a show. And that is why so many of these kings sought refuge at the back of Versailles, at the back of the gardens in the Trianon. So many of them like to find some peace, including Louis XIV, in fact, so in the Trianon. just to get away from the show. Just to get away from it all to a little bit. To stay in your pajamas. Yes. Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. Take okay. it easy a little bit. But when you invite all your friends, over, you want to have the biggest oh, yes. hall and you mm -hmm. want it filled with gold and lined with mirrors. Mm -hmm. What was the Hall of Mirrors like? It must have been dazzling in the day. We know what mirrors are now. Yes, and you know why the mirrors are there? Because when you cross the gallery of the, uh, the Hall of the Mirrors, the only thing you see on both sides are the gardens. Because on one side is the windows, the other side is the mirrors, and you're just surrounded by the gardens. The gardens, which is the nature domesticated by the king, 
And this is, for Louis XIV, a very important symbol because he also has a vegetable garden where you have strawberries in the winter. So uh, he could grow salad, things nobody else could grow. at any time. Oranges. Imagine Everything you could have to... an orange in the winter. Yeah. And then, talking of domestication, he domesticated the nobles. Totally. He submitted the nobles. So to... what, what does that mean? How do you... Let's say if you're the president of the United States and you don't like these senators, <laughs> you can domesticate them. Well, you I turn think them into I, party animals, I think basically. today would be a little, a little harder. You keep them busy. But yeah, you keep, well, the idea was to keep them, them busy so that they would not make any revolts anymore and spending money in showing off at the court by beautiful outfits mm -hmm. and not spending that money in making revolts on the side. So it's to control this nobility, which was very arrogant and very powerful, which was from time to time in the French history taking over. So this is fascinating that the king, divinely ordained, I mean, God says, you get to be the king, mm -hmm. no questions asked. You show off by building this incredible palace. You invite all the other kings there to show your power. Your people support you because they're happy to have God's favorite king on your side. You domesticate nature and you domesticate the nobility who would be the challenge to your authority. And then after a while, you go too far. And then what happens? The people no. rise up. Revolution. And you lose your head. <laughs> you lose there you your, go. Or, or you're not you, your descendants lose their heads. That's he did true. not lose his head. Was it, which, which king said, after me, the deluge? Louis Fourteenth. Him. Is that that's right? Yeah, he told him. his son, I've had a good run, now it's your chance, yeah. and I don't think you're going to have a very smooth ride. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, Veronique, tell us about the day, just in very simple kind of touristy mm -hmm. pop turns, that the people of Paris came out and ended the king's uh, reign at Versailles. It was after the storming of the Bastille that happened in July, uh -huh. and that happened in October. And it was really the women who uh, walked all the way to Versailles. They were hungry and they were not happy. And they basically stormed the palace with a few men, we're assuming. Uh -huh. <laughs> a few men dressed as women. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is that right? And they had, totally. their, they had their little paring knives to, to and give, their rolling pins. To give a more, bit more fury you know, to the crowd. Yeah. Oh, and, yes. so, and so they took the royal family mm -hmm. back to Paris with them. And Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI, never saw Versailles again. Took a couple more years and then they were both executed. In fact, so, so they ultimately cut off their heads. Yes, ultimately, Chopped they off. both lost mm -hmm. their... Yep. A foot shorter at the top. I know, mm -hmm. this is a horrible way the to guillotine. say things. <laughs> well, then, all of a sudden, the divine monarch is gone, the greatest palace is taken over by the people, and then after the revolutions, eventually you get another king, but he's controlled by a constitution. Yes, it's different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. No more divine royalty afterwards. Now, 200 years later, tourism comes, and mm -hmm. you've got Versailles just showing off, and today it is the palace to see in Europe. French tour guides Véronique Savoy and Arnaud Savignon are helping us plan a visit to Europe's grandest royal palace, Versailles, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. During lockdown periods, Versailles has tried to leave its grounds open for visitors while its buildings are closed. When I think of all the great palaces in Europe, it seems to me Versailles is the model. In, in Madrid, in Vienna, in St. Petersburg, all over the place, you've yes. got want to be Versailles. Mm -hmm. Because they're all impressed by it. Yeah. And it's the reference. The only chateau that's not is the one that inspired Versailles, Volvicomte. Yes, and that's, that's the right. only place, the only chateau where you won't hear, this is the place inspired by Versailles, because that is the place that inspired Versailles. When you go there, yes. It's not, Volvicomte. A, it's not Volvicomte. like a big place to, to visit. I mean, no, it's I a nice day Volvicomte. trip. It's, it's, fantastic. it's more intimate. But when we think about going to Versailles, of course, it's very crowded. It's a very easy one-hour side trip from Paris. What is your advice for handling the crowds, Veronique? 
I like to spend the night in Versailles. I like the city as much as I like the chateau. And if you spend the night, then that gives you more time to spread out the visit and oh. to see the gardens one day and to see the chateau the rest of the yeah, time. To do possibly a private tour, a group tour on site, which enables you to cut a lot of the lines that you can find there. So that would be my advice is to spread it out and enjoy the beautiful city of Versailles. Mm. That's a good idea because tour groups are going in the morning. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be quieter, you have to go in the afternoon. But then the Trianon are only open in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So ah. you're kind of stuck. Yeah, you have yeah. a dilemma. You know, it's, right. it's, it's yes. very, uh, very hard. Decisions, to, decisions. Yes. But the town of Versailles is quite nice. Beautiful. It's and a when, wonderful market. And when Louis XIV designed the chateau, he also designed the city. So for him, it was a package deal. Mm. And it's almost a shame that today everybody's so focused on the chateau, though it's understandable, and the gardens, when really there is a beautiful city out there. Yeah, André Le Nôtre designed the gardens, but he also designed some of the main streets in the yeah, city. Yeah, the cathedral is beautiful. Mm -hmm. a really and it's a 10-minute walk from the train station. Very close. And again, you take the train, the RER train, from downtown Paris. It's about an hour, isn't it? Or yes. Like less. Maximum. I mean, the ride minutes. itself is 30, 35 minutes. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then you walk for 10 minutes to the palace, and you can also walk to the town. But you need to organize because it's Plan so ahead. crowded. Plan ahead. And you should really buy your ticket online in advance with a reservation. Veronique, will that save you time and headaches when you get to the palace? It will, though it's really hard to predict how long the security lines will be, and that's your first line. And it can be smooth or it can be longer. But anything that can help you cut the waiting time after that, you should do. Okay, so book, but everybody is equal no matter what they did before when it comes to the security line. Yes, to yep. get yeah. into the exactly. And yeah, you can't improvise going to Versailles. You're going to say, okay, let's, let's go with that today. No, otherwise you're going to line up and it's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be a mess. Because are, it's very crowded. Are some days more crowded than others? Yes. Uh, closed it's closed on Monday, so avoid Tuesdays. Tuesday is bad Tuesday, because yeah, Tuesdays, everybody Tuesdays, you know, the loo is closed, so yeah. they all rush to Versailles. So avoid Tuesday Tuesdays. Tuesday is the worst day. And yes. Sundays, because Parisians might yeah. go and during Sundays, the weekends as well. Absolutely. I would avoid Sundays. Okay. Weekends So anything from Wednesday and so on, you know, and, and, then, you three yeah, days. and after lunch. And don't underestimate how great the gardens are, but how big they are. It takes Huge. half a day to do the gardens. Yeah. Of course. You can always rent a car, you know, the little train, but it's still, still very big. There's a little cart, there's a train, there's bicycles. Uh, Se they do segways now. Is that right? Uh -huh. Well, the main thing is, if you have the energy and the time, get out to see where the royals would escape the rigors of palace life. In the Petit Trianon. The Grand Trianon and the Petit Trianon. You can actually buy a separate ticket for that. So if you've seen the chateau before and don't feel like braving the crowds again, uh -huh. then you can just buy the ticket, the pass to go see just the domain of the Trianon, Trianon domain. So you'll still wait in the security line, but after that, there's never a line. And you walk, exactly, right. exactly. There could be a line in the Petit Trianon sometimes in the summertime, but it's never really long. But uh, the yeah. word is, uh, it means there are two little palaces out in the garden, but yes. it's not like a garden we would think of. It's a half an hour No, no, walk. it's really a park. I mean, it's a park. <laughs> it's That's a good way to put it. Massive park. park. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been dreaming about Versailles, learning about the divine monarch Louis XIV and imagining going there as tourists and as smart tourists. We've been joined by Véronique Savoy and Arnaud Sauvignon, and we've been learning from their expertise. And if each of you could just take a moment to demonstrate the grandeur of Versailles at its best, where would you go, Arnaud, just to, to feel the magnificence at Versailles? Uh, I think I would go on top of the stairs of the Grand Degré, and then from there you have right behind you the chateau uh, in a very horizontal um, position. And then on the other side you have uh, the whole perspective to the Grand Canal and so on and all the fountains and all the way up to the end of the park. 
And then you see how vast and huge this place is and, and how magnificent it is. So you're about 300 meters in front of the palace, standing at the top of the stairs. You look at this magnificent building and then you turn 180 degrees and this axis with the Grand Canal and the symmetrical gardens infinite, goes infinite. infinitely. Yeah. Veronique. Well, I would do, it's funny because I was going to say that, but I would do the other way around because (laughs) as a child, I used to go for picnics in the park with my family. So I would have my picnic because I like picnics in Versailles. I would have my picnic by the Grand Canal and look back towards the chateau and just look at the beautiful gardens, the statues and the chateau in the back. I know just where you're stopped. I know just where you are. It's a great place for a picnic. It's lovely. Well, the reason I, I gave also this option is because first, I like it. But also it's the one given by Louis XIV himself. Mm. Because he, he wrote a book which is how to discover the gardens of Versailles. And he, and he actually mentions, come out of the central door, walk through the parterre, and then arrive at the top of the Grand Degré, and then consider this, the perspective from there. There was an art. He actually told you the art of discovering this uh, magnificent so area. So he was very aware of the design. He had an artistic and impact. Eye. And deliberate in his marketing of the place to other yeah. people too. Very you know, deliberate because he tells you how to maximize the views. I've been going there for more than half of my life and uh, I'm just inspired by how both of you have got me excited to go there again. Because <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Véronique Savoy, Arnaud Savignon, merci bien. Merci you're welcome, you're welcome. We'll learn about the elaborate Easter customs of Greece and Bulgaria in just a bit. But next, we meet a New York Times reporter whose team won a Pulitzer for investigating the Boko Haram terrorist group in Nigeria. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Kaji meitame oledapash, aingwa masailan, naisafiri o Rick Steve. That's in my Maasai language. My name is meitame oledapash. I'm from Maasailand in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Stiss. Kaji meitame oledapash naingwa Maasailand naisafiri o Rick Stiss. The grind of reporting on the U.S. economy was getting to her. When Dion Searcy heard the New York Times was looking for someone to head its West Africa bureau, she applied, and she got the position. She moved her husband and kids to their new base in Dakar, Senegal, sight unseen. Her reporting won her a Pulitzer for investigating the stories of the teenage suicide bombers of Boko Haram. Dion's written her memoir called In Pursuit of Disobedient Women to tell us about the lifelong friendships she made and what she's learned about the 500 million people living in the countries of West Africa. Dion joins us from her home in Brooklyn, New York. Dion, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This is so interesting that you just went into Senegal sight unseen and you became the bureau chief for the New York Times in West Africa. Describe your beat and the responsibilities of your work. Sure. Um, I was responsible for covering some 25 countries in both Central and West Africa. So everywhere, you know, south of the Sahara and not too far east, but as far as like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, my job really was to cover anything that happened in this giant, giant swath of land, anything from political stories to economic stories to really whatever I wanted. So it was a huge responsibility, but also kind of one of the last true foreign correspondent kind of jobs, I think, that exist in the world of American journalism, at least as far as being a roving correspondent with a lot of freedom. 
that is interesting to think that this is a, a sort of a dying breed. After you were working there in person for the New York Times in West Africa, what's the rationale, what the, what's the case you would make for a news source investing in having somebody right there in the field rather than just taking it from the off the, the line, you know? Well, I really think it's important. I mean, I think that you can argue the value of international correspondence and whether you should have someone from afar, you know, set a new sort of vision, I guess, instead of eyes on a place or if you should rely on local reporters. But I really feel like for me, I wanted to be a translator to my American audience of what I was seeing. And for Americans, when we think of Africa in general, and I use that term, I guess, in quotes, we think of an entire continent and not the 50-some countries that make up you know, this region. And we dismiss away entire cultures and languages. And when our stereotypes, I guess, of Africa are you know, famine and disease and war and maybe some wild animals. And you know, the region is so much more than that. Um, there are amazing political stories and amazing economic stories and poetry and art and you know, dance and music and just so much to write about, like you would if you were covering any city or region or country in the world. Now, when you got to know West Africa, did you find... Well, for instance, we have a big uh, issue in our society about the divide between rural and urban people. Is that same dynamic going on in a place like West Africa? Oh, man, so, so much. Um, I feel like the urban-rural divide there is so huge as, as villages are being, you know, emptied out by people looking for jobs and being chased away, you know, even by a changing climate from their farming jobs and moving into the cities and how that's changing cities with pollution, with overcrowding, with all these massive same issues really that we're facing here in America, but on a much different scale. I mean, I, I grew up in rural Nebraska, right? And everyone moved to the cities, including myself. And, mm -hmm. and our countryside is being emptied out. And it's the same thing that's going on there. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to find these comparisons to where I live now and where I used to live. So you've got that dynamic that we could imagine, or you could imagine in, in Europe or where somebody might have traveled. You've got tradition versus modern. You've got educated elites. You've got rich and poor people in the gap. Uh, you've got the treatment of women. You're a woman journalist. How did that impact your work? And, and was that different in cities and in the countryside or from one country to the other? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it impacted my work maybe less than you might think. I mean, it definitely helped form kind of an instant kinship with a lot of women, especially in the countryside. But really, I was so foreign, you know, to, to a lot of people mm. in a lot of different places already as a Westerner, as, you know, I, I white, and that was different than most places that I went. And so already, I'm so different that the fact that I was a woman was just like another one, like, you know, so I had like curly hair. Yeah, so you're the, <laughs> you're the white journalist. You're not the white woman journalist. You're the, the white journalist. That's right. Uh, and, and American too. You know, a lot of people didn't have a lot of exposure to Americans. I mean, um, these countries were colonized by France and by the UK. So a lot of people were more familiar with French and British people than with Americans. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dion Searcy. She's a journalist for The New York Times, and uh, she's written a book called In Pursuit of Disobedient Women. And it's the story of her experience as the bureau chief for West Africa. Tell us about uh, your work as a journalist and, and your pursuit of disobedient women. 
Sure. So, I mean, I think that you can stereotype and categorize parts of America as violent and dangerous and poverty stricken, right? And and just like that, there are places in West Africa that there are wars and there are there's a lot of poverty. And one of my responsibilities as a journalist, I felt like was to cover those wars and also balance that out with with happy stories and good stories to make sure that people knew that it wasn't all that this place was made of. But one theme that I really um, came to love is, you know, Africa, for us in America, Africans are so overlooked, but one of the most overlooked sets of people are women. I mean, women aren't decision makers in boardrooms or in governments or even in families in a lot of cases in West Africa, yet they're finding all these amazing ways to survive. And sometimes in very, very extreme ways. And one of those is at war and in northeastern Nigeria, where suicide bombings were happening a lot from this group of Islamic terrorists called Boko Haram. They were kidnapping women, sometimes very brutally, and forcing them, um, tying them with suicide bombs and forcing them to blow themselves up at marketplaces, in mosques, at the gates of a university even. But what I discovered are there is a set of women who were very, very cleverly getting out of doing this and finding ways to turn themselves in, to approach people and talk them into taking off their bonds, to pretending to blow up something and uh, pretending that they'd set their bomb down and blown something up and in fact thrown their bomb down a well and been able to trick what was one of the most deadly terror groups in the world and finding their ways to, mm. to survive. Your article on this whole thing with young girls who were forced into being suicide bombers by Boko Haram is so engrossing. If somebody wants to find it, what do they search for online? You know, I think they would search for my name and, and suicide bomber, um, women suicide bombers. It's a tragic, heartbreaking story, but at the same time, it, it humanizes people it's just fascinating. You met a grandmother named Rahila. You met a lot of women, and you talk about them, of course, in your book, In Pursuit of Disobedient Women. Tell us about Rahila. Sure. So Rahila was really, I had heard about this spate of suicide bombings and, and that women more and more were being used and was very confused by it. So I went to the far north of Cameroon. It's this little slivery slip of land in the north of Cameroon that borders Nigeria, where there were a lot of refugees who were in camps there, who had fled Boko Haram. And I stumbled upon this woman um, called Rahila and crawled inside her little tent in this very, very overcrowded and hot refugee camp. And, you know, I just said, tell me about your time with Boko Haram. And she started telling me the most horrific tale of being kidnapped and watching family members killed and being taken to a Boko Haram camp. And the first thing she noticed, she said, was just a sea of women in front of her who also had been kidnapped. And Boko Haram was putting them through this very systemic training of becoming soldiers for them. And they gave them all sticks and put them through weapons training. Um, they taught them how to behead someone. They taught them also how to keep a suicide bomb, like a vest or a belt still. They said, you know, hold it under your armpit really tight so that it doesn't move around a lot so that it doesn't explode prematurely. And Rahila very cleverly found out that there was one night when everyone was gathering for a big speech from the leader of Boko Haram, and she knew everyone was desperate to hear him talk. And so when his speech started, she escaped and walked for miles barefoot across really rough terrain 
and got to this refugee camp where, you know, she just wanted somebody to hear her story. And that for me was the beginning of piecing together that these women weren't vicious fighters as the media, as the government had portrayed them. I mean, there were billboards up that said, don't let your daughters, you know, become suicide bombers. You have to keep them away from Boko Haram and like implying that someone would give their daughter away. And that just didn't sit well with me. That didn't Mm. strike me as a reasonable thing. You know, I'm a mom, (laughs) like I would never do that. And I didn't figure that there Mm -hmm. was any difference between me and a Nigerian or Cameroonian mother. How does Boko Haram manage to have a base? I mean, apart from their horrible, horrific tactics, is there a a case for their cause? Uh, How do they appeal to people, or is it total terror? You can really sort of start to see the seeds of how this happens. I mean, it comes from government neglect. I think it's the same in every kind of terror group, whether it's ISIS or, you know, whomever else. I mean, they grew up in a region, a rural region, where there were not paved roads, there was not electricity, and also corruption, heinous corruption, where government officials would collect taxes and then go out and buy a Bentley, you know, amid all this insufferable poverty and send their kids off to boarding school. And you can really, really see how anger, I mean, I go there and report on things and I get angry, you know, and I'm there for a blip in time. But can you imagine living there for generations? Conceivably, a reasonable person could be in a mindset of anger and frustration with the status quo that they would support Boko Haram. Right. And I think there's a lot of other, you know, things mixed in there. And there is some obviously religious fervor. But I really, you know, I started out my journalism career working in housing projects in the south side of Chicago, where gang violence was mm-hmm. insane. And and I'm not comparing the two, because obviously that's really, really mm-hmm. different. But the same sorts of seeds are there, like government neglect, you know, no jobs for kids. I mean, these are they're right. aimless youth in America, just like they're aimless youth in Nigeria. And really, the seeds of these, of, of all the bad things kind of start out the same. And you weave in a little bit of religious fanaticism or fundamentalism, yeah. and you uh, realize that people have no hope and no opportunity, and uh, it's, a, and, it's a dangerous mix. Yeah, you, you give the guys a lot of guns, and everybody kind of goes nuts. New York Times political reporter Dion Searcy is joining us from her home in Brooklyn, New York, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Dion wrote the book In Pursuit of Disobedient Women to describe her time as the paper's bureau chief for West Africa and what it was like for her husband and children to join her in Dakar, Senegal. Dion tells us how her kids adapted to living in Senegal and what the local art scene is like there in an extra to this week's show. You can hear it at ricksteves.com radio. So, Dion, you wrote in your book that uh, your family lucked out by being stationed in Dakar. How, how so? How was that lucking out? Oh, man, Dakar is so beautiful. Um, it's so fun. For one thing, it's kind of on this little triangle tip, the westernmost point of the continent. And so you have shoreline, you know, on several different sides. And it's a huge surf capital of the region, which I didn't realize until I got there. There's a break all the time on all the different coastlines. <laughs> And uh, there are no sharks. I mean, that's this is part of a sad story, but it's largely because of overfishing. Um, but it's safe other than sea urchins to surf in. My kids took surf lessons. It's got an amazing, amazing music scene with Cher Lowe and Yusuf Endor and all these famous people that you may, you know, you may find somewhere hmm. it jogs in your brain that you can 
Remember um, these grand musicians of West Africa? It's got great restaurants, a great nightlife. I mean, really almost like a a Spain-like nightlife where it doesn't really, things don't really get going until about one in the morning. A lot of the concerts didn't start until two or three, which meant I rarely went because I have kids. To me, as a guy who writes about tourism and so on, and we're so comfortable in Europe, if you did a trip, let's say, in Europe, and you were going to fly home and you had an extra week, could you actually just fly to Senegal and spend a week there and then fly home from Senegal and just think of it as another dimension of your of your vacation without any major challenges? It would just be comfortable, and then you'd go, well, why doesn't everybody do this? Absolutely. You could fly to Dakar. I mean, Paris to Dakar is a, is a well-worn route, right? And you can fly there direct. Um, it'd probably be an overnight flight. It's a, definitely a francophone country, but mm-hmm. English is becoming more and more common. And, you know, I always get by, I, I don't mind traveling in places like when, when I'm traveling, not when I'm reporting, but I don't mind traveling places where I don't speak the language. I mean, you can do a lot with hand signals and grunting and smiling, I right, feel like. Right. But yeah, you can pick up, you can go to really nice hotels. There's a Radisson Blue right on the, you know, for, if you're looking for a familiar mm-hmm. hotel chain, um, right on the water. There's a great new museum, a museum of black civilizations that just opened up. There mm-hmm. are French bakeries that are really good. Mm. Um, I even, I wrote a travel piece for the New York Times, 36 hours in Dakar about all the things you can do. So I, I love giving recommendations for great places to go in Dakar and in Senegal generally. What is your take on the role of China uh, investing in the infrastructure of, of Africa these days? I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, when I arrived in Dakar, China was really not very present in West Africa. But in the four years, that changed dramatically. Um, They built a wrestling stadium in Senegal. Wrestling is the national pastime. It's the baseball of Senegal. They were helping to build a whole new city outside Dakar to alleviate overcrowding. They gave funding to build the big Museum of Black Civilizations in downtown Dakar. And that was happening all across West Africa. And, you know, they're basically the sugar daddy you know, for a lot of these governments that yeah. can't afford to do it themselves. And, and there are a lot of cautionary tales, you know, with the lending, especially where governments can't pay back the money. And then what are the implications? Like a lot of these countries have a lot of resources, a lot of minerals, um, gold and, Mm -hmm. you know, diamonds even in some cases. And so that you can really start to sense how these odd geopolitical struggles are going to sort of develop if you're beholden to a nation that wants what you have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dion Searcy. Her book is In Pursuit of Disobedient Women. Dion, just to, to wrap up our conversation, what's the biggest takeaway from, from the whole experience you had in West Africa that you'd like to leave with us? Well, I think the biggest takeaway for me was really realizing how much I had in common with, with people in Africa, which of course, you know, you would think is true, right? But just what a diverse place it was and how much I had to learn just even from walking in an art gallery, you know, in, in Senegal or going to the Dakar Biennale, the big art show that happens every two years, and just looking at, you know, how people see themselves and how they see themselves sort of, I guess, portrayed through people like me, I think is a really, really valuable experience to make sure that I'm telling their stories accurately and and to try to help them tell their own stories too, which I hope happens. Dion Searcy, Congratulations on your book, In Pursuit of Disobedient Women, and best wishes with your your journalism as you move forward. Thank you so much.
If you thought Easter was over with four weeks ago, our next guests remind us there's more than one way to color an Easter egg. We look at the distinctive traditions of Orthodox Christians in Bulgaria and Greece next on Travel with Rick Steves. In some years, you get to celebrate Easter twice if you follow both the Western and the Eastern Orthodox dates for the holiday. The Julian and Gregorian calendars can move the date of Easter four weeks apart, like it is this year. And it's not just the date that causes the difference between what Catholics, Lutherans, or Baptists observe and what you'll find in the Orthodox churches. Our tour-guiding friends Luba Boyanin from Bulgaria and Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece remind us that in their Orthodox faith, Easter is their biggest holiday of the year. It's bigger for them than Christmas. They joined us several years ago to describe what they do for Lent and Easter in their countries in a segment that hasn't aired on Travel with Rick Steves now for several years. Sadly, our friend Luba passed away five years ago from cancer. She was one of a kind. Luba and her late husband started a tour company right after communism fell in Bulgaria. She loved sharing the cultural riches of Bulgaria with us. So it's especially poignant to hear her voice again as she speaks about the Easter traditions that were so important to her and her faith. Lubia, what do you look forward to in Bulgaria for Easter? How is oh, it a special this is, holiday? Uh, this is my favorite time of the year. Why and I think not only for me, for all Bulgarians. More than Christmas. More than Christmas. For us, uh, resurrection means the beginning of new life, beginning of uh, the nature is coming to be green, to to be happy after the long winter. And for for us, we're celebrating with lots of events. I would say with the deep roots of pagan from the pagan. So the whole Easter thing, resurrection and springtime and the pagan ideas that winter is over. This is all still yes, a part of the yes. psyche. So the of resurrection Bulgaria. is very important. Right. And uh, for the religious um, view of, uh, of the event, resurrection means beginning of the new life. We all were saved. Uh, That's the best news in the Christian the, this festival. This is the very yeah. important. And we are celebrating with the midnight services. Mm-hmm. But uh, the event is not only one um, particular day. The event is the whole week, starting from St. Lazarus Day. Okay, now I want to get into that in just a moment, but I want to hear from Anastasia. As you look forward to Easter in Greece with the uh, Greek Orthodox religion. What's it like? Well, for us, I I suppose for the whole Orthodox world, Easter is a lot more important than Christmas because Christmas is the beginning, is the birth, but the birth is nothing without the crucifixion and the resurrection. So it's it's a lot more important and it does not only mean the beginning of a new life, it's, uh, it's the salvation of mankind in general, if, of course, you believe in it because everything has to do with faith. You either believe in that or not. When you celebrate Greek Orthodox uh, Easter, what does Lent mean to you? Lent is um, a period, so-called Great Lent, because mm-hmm. there are three Lent periods okay. in the whole of the year. One before Christmas, one in the summer, and one before Easter. It's a 40 days fasting time period. And fasting means um, not just avoiding to eat certain foods, but also uh, trying to lead a life that is away from sin and from the small joys of life. Like, for example, if you're a smoker, you try to reduce a bit smoking, not only that. And you just try to think more of yourself in a spiritual way. And, and It's a kind of a spiritual preparation for Easter then. It is. It is a spiritual preparation for Easter, definitely. And it is a way of, of letting you understand the Easter week better. 
uh, cleansing you have, yourself. You have three of these meditative periods for sort of getting your soul ready for some great festival, yeah. and the Easter Lent is called the Great Lent. Yes. Now, what about Clean Monday? Clean Monday is the beginning of the Great Lent, and we call it like that, Clean Monday, because it has to do with cleansing yourself. Okay. And, and it's the beginning of fasting. The beginning. Okay. This is a public holiday in Greece, this Clean it Monday. It is. Clean Monday is a public fa- holiday. Is it a family time? Yeah. It's definitely a family time, and usually people meet, go out then, and uh, many times we have uh, lunch together. Of course, lunch in Greece uh, during holidays is not just a one-hour thing. It could be a one-day-long thing. <laughs> it's your big, <laughs> fat Greek holiday meal. Like that, something like that. Lubia, tell us more about Lent in Bulgaria. The Lent, though, it's very, also very interesting. We're starting uh, preparation for Lent with the two very happy events. One is the the last day when we eat meat. Uh, it's called Mesni Zaguvezni. Whoa, the last day of meat for the 40 days. The last day huh? of meat is uh, eight weeks before Easter. It's kind of like Mardi it's Gras a Sunday. When, when everything it's, goes. Uh, yeah. Usually this is a Sunday, and we visit uh, families when we can eat uh, meet together to share. But the next week, the next Sunday is um, more very important because we call it the cheese, uh, the cheese Sunday, when uh, this is the last day when the families are eating dairy farm products like cheese, milk, uh, eggs. Wow. This and, is, so first um, of all, there's your last meat, and then a, a week later, it's your last cheese and dairy. last cheese. And this day, when we celebrated this Sirnizagovezni uh, day, for us, is the best, we say, because it's Forgiveness Day. And if you do mistakes during the year, if you say some bad words to a neighbor or to a parent or to your relatives or friends, uh, this is a very good excuse when you can go to, to them to this day. You can go and you can say, please forgive my mistakes, my sins. Now, usually the younger people are doing this uh, towards the older relatives or friends. And we all have um, received this uh, forgiveness. We are now ready to do more mistakes for the next year. <laughs> you clean the slate. <laughs> and we clean. And uh, this is on Sunday. Uh, for us, a clean Monday means that you should not eat anything. And uh, in some areas of Bulgaria, they um, you have in America um, mummers. Uh, mummers. Mummers for, I think, Philadelphia mummers who yeah. are dancing for the 1st of January. We have a mummers who are for the January, for the new year. How are these but mummers now the associated mummers, with the, Easter? The mummers, uh, they are the ones who, uh, through the games, are presenting resurrection of nature. And usually those mummers, uh, they are men only. Women are not allowed to participate in this event. Some of them with the big masks, very big uh, tall masks, and with the bells. And they are jumping. They are not allowed to talk. They can jump and... Uh, with the sound of the bells, uh, they push out. The idea is to push out the bad spirits from the village. But the most important part of the mummers group, this is um, a group of uh, uh, men who have an animal. This is uh, two men who are presenting uh, the play of animal. could be um, ox or then be a camel or a goat or any other animal. And these uh, uh, mummers, they have to visit every home in the village. They, they have a quite a difficult job for this day. They are visiting, and in front of every home, uh, when they greet the owners of the home, the animal is dying. And when the animal is dying, there is one person who plays, it's like a theater, like a performance, like a carnival. One person uh, is a doctor, uh, 
who helps the animal to be uh, turned back to the life, and everybody jump, everybody enjoy, and so this is kind of mystical presentation so of resurrection. this is sort of a, a mystical theater representing the mystical theater and the, the event. Hmm. The event uh, finish uh, late afternoon before the sunset at the square of the village when um, those mummers, uh, we called kukeri, they're presenting a plowing, symbolic plowing. and Pl- Plowing. Plowing. In the, in the dirt, plowing yeah. in, a, in a circle and spreading a weeds. Okay, so this sounds like there's these crazy decorated dancers that's celebrating yes, the arrival crazy. of spring. Very it's crazy a little bit pagan. It's as a well pagan. As cra- it's a pagan. All right. What day do the mummers come exactly? Um, they're doing their celebration on the Sunday, the Tuesday, forgive me. Tuesday, so this is... And the Monday, the Clean Monday, they're doing. Now, is Clean Monday the beginning of Holy Week or the beginning of Lent? Because there's Beginning a, of Lent. Beginning of Lent. Beginning of Lent. Okay. And after that, we have this, uh, this week of uh, Lent. We are not allowed, for the first three days, we are not allowed to eat anything and to drink anything. The drink you can have... On Monday after five o'clock after sunset. So this Lent business is pretty serious here. If you're it's a if serious, you're, if you're a very serious. So three days you have to be very strict. Okay. And then we have a celebration on Saturday. Uh, we call it the Horse Easter. It's a Saint Theodore Day, according to Saint the Orthodox. Saint Theodore Day. Theodore the Horse Day. Easter. The Horse Easter. When everyone who has a horse has to decorate the horse, a very pretty well. And the, here I brought this, you see this red and oh, white like amulet. A little pom pom. <laughs> yes, put these, we uh, call it like a martinitza. Yes, all the horses are decorated uh, with those pompons um, wow. around. And they have a parade and horse races in uh, every village. It's, it's a very cheerful day. St. Tudor Day or the Horse Easter. The Horse Easter. <laughs> We're learning about the many distinct traditions that go into Eastern Orthodox observances for the Easter season on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Anastasia Gaitanu from Thessaloniki, Greece, and Luba Boyanin from Sofia in Bulgaria. Now let's go back to Greece here. Anastasia, Bulgarians really pull out all the stops here. They decorate <laughs> their horses. They don't eat cheese. They don't eat meat. they got these mummers dancing around. They, they fake kill animals and bring them back to life. <laughs> Does Greece do the same? Uh, no, not really. Well, <laughs> we do have uh, the two Sundays, the Sunday of meat, the last Sunday of meat, and the last Sunday of cheese is the same. Right. But uh, no, we don't, you don't decorate have the your No, <laughs> We do have uh, feasts like that, that are relics, let's say, of the pagan time. But this is all during the carnival time, till Clint Monday. Clint Monday, there is nothing like that. Okay, let's talk about you've had all of this denial that is all around Christendom during Lent. Now you're going to sort of celebrate the resurrection, mm-hmm. the arrival of spring, the uh, resurrection of Jesus, and you're going to eat well. Is that yeah, right? So definitely. now, in Greece, how do you make up for all that denial from your stomach's point of view? <laughs> well, first of all, you have to think of what you're not allowed to eat. It's not exactly like in Bulgaria. Well, during the 40 days, 48 days actually, with the Easter week, you're not allowed to eat any dairy products, uh, any fish, uh, any meat, anything oh. that has blood. Hmm. So that's why you're not allowed to eat fish. But you can eat um, uh, seafood, uh, for example. Squids are allowed. Squids don't have blood. 
Well, they got ink. you don't see it. Of course they yeah. do, but you don't see <laughs> okay. it. It's what you don't yeah. see. Okay. Right? But, um, and then you come to the Easter week, and the Easter week is the most important one because that's the Passion Week. So you have to, let's say, symbolically suffer with God together. Right. Right. And uh, there is a, a climax to the whole thing, mm-hmm. starting mainly on um, Thursday. And Thursday is the preparation for the grave. Then also there is a, a wonderful Mass in the church. And then on Friday, it's uh, the day where... Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday, exactly. Uh, we do have in the church the so-called epitaph, which means on the grave. That is a kind of table that has a canopy on it. And symbolically, it is the grave of Jesus. And there is also a kind of cloth on it where you see uh, Jesus then as an, an embroidery, usually, um, depicting the body of Jesus then going into the grave. And that is decorated with flowers, usually either with carnations or with roses, white and red. And there are the crosses that are made with the roses. And then there is a great procession on that day. There is a great liturgy, of course. And this is Good Friday. Yeah, that's Good Friday. And it's then, morning. And then day. Sunday arrives. And what and happens? Then, and then Saturday. Saturday, Saturday mm-hmm. is the main climax because Saturday is the resurrection day. Okay. And uh, that happens at midnight. Course, midnight, Saturday midnight, night. Midnight, yeah. Midnight. Of course, we don't exactly know when it happened because in, in every gospel book it's a bit different. Right, but, but that's we the prefer big, midnight. It's the big um, Easter mm-hmm. Mass is, yeah. is midnight Saturday. And then after the Mass? And then after the Mass, then uh, during the Mass, first of all, we get the Holy Light. That is the eternal divine light given to us by God. Uh, there is this wonder in Jerusalem where the lights uh, go on on themselves, the, the candles. And there is a special flight every year from Olympic Airways that brings that light, that divine light, from Jerusalem to Athens. Because due wow. to the time difference, it gets on time. Right. Or in time. And, uh, of course, you only get it that real light in Athens and every other church, the priests lights the candles. But that light is a blessed light, and that brings um, health and luck and prosperity to your house. So you bring it to the house, and you make with, uh, with the smoke the sign of the cross at the doorstep or, or the lintel of the door, so that you're protected and blessed during the whole year by God. And then you get into the house, of course. And the first thing you do, and some do it also in in the yard of the church, is we have red eggs. The egg is a very old symbol. It's a pagan symbol, actually, but the church has taken it and given a new uh, symbolical meaning to it. It's a symbol of the new life because in the egg there is a life. And if the conditions are the correct ones, this life can develop. So it's like the grave of Jesus and the resurrection. That's the symbolical meaning of that. Okay. Easter time is the biggest holiday of the year for many Orthodox Christians. So to correspond with this year's date of Orthodox Easter, we're revisiting a classic Travel with Rick Steves interview with tour guide Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece. And the elaborate traditions in Bulgaria are described by our late friend Luba Boyanin, who passed away in 2016. In Bulgaria, Lubia, you have a the good luck crack also, right? Tell us about that. Oh, uh, yes. We have it about almost the same. Sure. Um, except we have uh, for a week before Easter, the Saturday uh, before Easter, we have a celebration of St. Lazarus Day. 
And St. Lazarus Day for us is very important for all the girls, uh, not married girls. Not the girls have to be dressed as a little brides, except the veil. And they have to have a beautiful decoration on their heads with the flowers, and they are dancing. So the girls have to walk around the village in uh, these groups, and they have one girl who is uh, leading the procession, and she's called Kumica. Kumica uh, means the like a little princess or little queen. Uh-huh. And uh, they're dancing uh, dances. These are special dances. It's called the uh, St. Lazarus dances. The girls are called Lazarki from St. Lazarus Day. And they um, uh, they have a songs, the most beautiful songs, maybe one over 300 different songs they have to bless every one member of the family. They are collecting white eggs. And the next Thursday, the Great Thursday, they can dye eggs and they can paint the eggs with the beautiful colors, with the symbols, different symbols. The eggs have to be painted. And these eggs they can give when the, the time of Easter comes to their beloved boyfriends or to people that they really love. It. So the colored Easter eggs really have a lot of uh, care and, and thought that goes into them. Yes. And it's a way to yes. express your love for yes. a special person. And uh, the table we have on Friday, the table that is taken out of um, the altar, and it stays inside the church, we obligatory, we have to pass under the table. Three times. Uh, under the table? No, we have only one time, oh, because it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. So you have the big mass at midnight on East, yes, uh, on Saturday yes. night. And we have also Bulgaria Air who fly to Jerusalem with a special charter flight to Jerusalem. And together o- Olympic with Air light, and Bulgarian Air mm-hmm. bring the light from Jerusalem to Sofia and Athens. Yes. So I want to stress that uh, this is a, a very, very alive festival in the in the religious calendar yes. in Greece and in Bulgaria. Yes. And if you really enjoy Easter, it's generally not on the same day as Easter in the Western Christian world. Uh, I understand that in the Orthodox uh, Church, it's based on the Julian calendar, and that lets it fall generally after Easter in Western Europe and the United yeah. States. Of course, in Easter, all over the world, people say Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Yes. Can you say that in Bulgarian? In Bulgarian, me? we say Christos voskrese, and we reply, Vuistina voskrese. He is risen indeed. And in Greece? Oh, we say Christos anesti, and the answer is um, Alithos anesti. And if, if you just want to say Happy Easter, what do you say? Kalo Pascha. Justit velikten. And for me, it sounds a lot easier. Happy Easter. <laughs> Lubya Boyanin from Bulgaria and Anastasia Gaetanu from Greece. Thank you very much and happy Easter. Thank you. You too. Happy Easter. Christos vos kresse. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, affiliate support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out more about our guests, search the show archives, and listen again anytime you like. Look on our website. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.